Good evening, saints. Good evening. All right, so let's do this. I'll do a short teaching, and then if we have any time after that, we can do some testimony time. So, this week, um, this week has been a challenging week for me and our family. So this week we opened up and we had a flat tire on Monday. And so I was, uh, well, actually it opened up last Saturday. We found out we had a tire that was getting flat. We tried to fill it up with air and found out Sunday morning that it didn't hold any air. So Sunday morning we got up early and we took it over to the place and they was going to fix it while we was at church. So we got up early and we still got to church on time. And they said they would fix it for us, and they seemed to have fixed it. But then on Monday, when I got out of work, it was flat again. So then we had to take it over and get it fixed. So I had to tow it over to a place that was near my job, because my job is in the Racine, Kenosha area. So got it flat, taken over there. Um, had to get a ride to work on Tuesday, and then get it fixed up on Tuesday uh, while I was there. When I got there, they had not done any work at all. And so they had to start work by understanding that I was not happy that they hadn't started work, and that's what got them motivated to get the work done. <laughs> then they got the work done. And then through this time, I was supposed to be preparing um, two sermon-level stuff for the conference that we went to. Then Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was at that conference, and that was good. Wednesday night, I was with you guys. On Thursday, my first presentation. Friday, second presentation. Um, during that time, I got sick somehow. And I don't know what kind of thing this is I got, but I get these, this thing. I've been getting headaches here on and, on and off, but this one was just real bad headaches that didn't allow me. seemed like I couldn't really focus my thoughts. So this was going on, um, but... I was able to fight through. I just felt like I was just going through a swamp, what I was thinking. And it was at a time when I needed to be thinking fast. And if uh, you know anything about me, I like to do my thinking process likes to go fast. Um, I read very fast. I think very fast. So anything that slows me down is extremely frustrating for me. So it was just a frustrating uh, week all the way through. But I kept on pushing through it kept pushing through it. Friday night, started trying to study, and I just could not get anywhere. I had it all down in my head, but I just couldn't get it on paper. And I guess some of it, too, was we just been studying Romans so hard throughout the week that it was hard to even go through my normal process that I go through while I do a sermon. I have a process that I go through, let me know that I'm done with my studying, so I don't go too short or too far. And I just could not get it done. So finally on Saturday, I just pushed through it. But I was, man, my head is just splitting. And this morning, Sunday school, head was just splitting. So I finally just asked my mom if she can give me some kind of medicine or something. And it helped a little bit. But this afternoon was with Brother Cliff. And I know he's seen me sometimes just facing out because my head is just splitting. So, uh, But God was good this morning. Uh, my wife, she said that I made sense. So I appreciate that. 
because uh, I wasn't so sure, but I just was going to get through it. So just praise God for that. What I want to share with you is just um, one of the things, one of the scriptures that we just kept on touching on at the conference is in 1 Timothy And verse chapter four, verse eleven says this: Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the exam- the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now the very first verse, talk about command or teach these things. And that's referring to all the different things that he taught up to this point. Just fundamentals of the faith, practical things, not deep things. I don't think most pastors need to work on these deep things. Most of us don't have deep problems in our lives. We have to either obey or not obey. Isn't that the truth? Right? We don't come into problems where it's figure out if the theory on it. It's the practical part that we have to do. We said, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, and this is just talking about as a pastor maintaining respectability, right? Or somebody that's training to be a pastor, maintaining respectability. And then he says, as I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And this is just something that just drives me. One thing that we got to be driven to and it got to be devoted to is the Word. And God has, in his sovereign way, he's devoted me to the word. So in the ministry of the word, I get to operate in many different ways. I get to teach Sunday school. So that's Sunday morning. Sometimes I get to do a sermon like you heard this morning. I get to on Wednesday do a meditation. On Thursday night I leave a Bible study. We go through the word of God then. And then when the weather is good, we leave witnessing on Saturday. So I keep going through the Word. I see the Word in many different ways, and that's something that I've been devoted to. But then what it says here, it says at the end of verse 15, so that all may see your progress. And this has just been my prayer. And One thing they kept on pushing at the conference is this. It doesn't say all may see your skill or your excellence or your brilliance, because that may not always be apparent, right? Uh, but it does show show your progress. And what I want believers to see is, here I was, here I am. And that progress is something that we just got to keep on showing um, as teachers. So one of the things that I wanted to bring to you this evening is just what we learned at that conference to show the progress that I made. Now, Dale was able to attend too, and I think that he had a, it was a good experience for him and it opened his eyes to some things but one thing you must understand is that teaching and preaching God's word is not meant to be easy neither is it meant to be magical 
is meant to be a work. One of the first things they open with is stay on the line. I talked about this in my sermon, but the thought is this. God's word and God's truth is a straight line. And we as preachers and teachers of God's word, we dare not go above or below that line. It's not even our word, right? When we use that phrase, God's word, that's an important phrase because what it means is it's not my word, right? You shouldn't go home and say, Brian said this. If you did, then I'm not preaching God's word. You should go home and say, God's word said this. God's word said that. If I preach above the line, or what that means is more than what God's word says, then I will be like those we heard about in Sunday school who promise too much. Now, we can all think about that. Give, let's give some examples together of people who preach above God's word. And what do they say? What kind of things do we hear? Anybody? Raise your hand. God wants you to be rich. Prosperity gospel. You guys is basically saying the same thing. Praise God. Great minds think alike, right? What else? Name it and claim it. No problems. Speak it into existence. God will heal you. One example they gave at the conference is a pastor promised somebody that their wife will be healed, and two months later that wife died. Now let me ask you this. Was it God's purpose that that wife died? Exactly, yes. Now what happens to the person who thinks that God said he would heal somebody and he does not? What happens? Hmm? He begins to hate God. Can you keep on going with that? Mm -hmm. So God is not a holder of his word. You lose faith in him. Yeah, that is a good point. Their credibility is gone. Okay, right. So it's now, you're right about that. That is another point that they raised up. What happens is the person is at fault who didn't somehow accomplish what the preacher said could be accomplished. So it's your fault for not having enough faith, right? It's your fault for not having enough faith. In fact, you need to have more faith. Now, I think the illustration that I pointed about the two Jews who painted the blood above their doorposts should expose the error of that kind of thinking, right? If we think that it's the intensity of our faith that's going to get us from point A to point B, you have a man-centered theology. And a man-centered theology is a man-worshiping religion, and it has no place in the house of God. Because man will always let you down. If your faith is in me as a preacher or a teacher or a leader, you will be disappointed because I will let you down. 
any man besides the God-man, Christ Jesus, that you put your faith in, you will be disappointed. But the scripture says those who hope in him will not be put to shame. Brother uh, Lawrence had his hand raised. Yes, straight up atheism, right, can be the result of that kind of thinking. Now let me ask you this. What happens with preaching that is below the line? What does it mean to be below the line? Well, that means you say less than what God has said. Now, I think one point you could make, and I will take this point with this illustration because no illustration is perfect. You might say to me, Brian, you know, you can't add anything without taking something else away. And to that... All I can do is say, wise person, that's a wise answer. But still, just for this second illustration, what's below the line? Patty, did you raise your hand? There you go. That's a good example, right? We're not going to talk about sin in this church. What's other examples? Let's first talk about examples of the kind of teaching. And then after that, we'll talk about ramifications of that, right? So what other examples of not teaching all God has said do you see? Yep. Yep. And let's think about this real quick before we get to Jonathan. I won't forget you, Jonathan. Um, does the Old Testament just teach judgment? Listen, the message of grace is not new. Right? In the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Did they die that day? That's God's mercy. Noah got drunk. Abraham had a woman that was not his wife that he had a kid by. David and Bathsheba. Abraham lied, Isaac lied, Jacob was a trickster and a scammer, right? Joseph was prideful, Moses lost faith in many ways. In fact, there was a time where God was going to kill him because of his lack of faithfulness to him. There are no perfect people. So God always had to be a God of mercy to ever deal with men like us. On the other hand, is God a God of no judgment in the New Testament? Have you read Ananias and Zephyrah? Have you read 1 Corinthians 11, what he did to those who took his communion and didn't take it seriously? Have you read Revelations 2 and 3? the letters that Jesus wrote to the church where he said what he would do if they did not listen. God is the same from the beginning to the end. Now our understanding of his work may change through time. But to pretend that in the Old Testament they were perfect and in the New Testament we got grace, 
you can expose that real easy just by looking at what happened. All right, Brother John. Okay, yeah. Yep, Ionize is a virus. Yep. Yep. We can ignore those things, right? We can act like those things did not happen, but they did. But I think we can do that for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we can teach less than God's word because we don't understand parts. Right? There are many pastors who will say stuff like, I'll never teach the book of Revelations. Well, is that what God wants you to do? Yep. Yeah. But then let's take that even further. Who can believe by science in a virgin birth? Who could believe that a man could die and three days later rise again? Who could believe that somebody could take the inner problems and sin and I don't know what we would call them in science, all the isms, all the lacks, all the deficiencies in our mental condition? Because in science it's mental, but in the Bible it's called spiritual, right? Who could look at all those mental flaws and solve them by mere belief? See, if you go further with that, you will start to understand if you take away one thing, it's not hard to take away another. Interpret. The two go together, right? The two go together. So if you teach one and without the other, aren't you teaching something that is incomplete? we got lots of churches that do that. They teach things about prophecy or all these showy gifts. And they act like everybody should have that gift. But the Bible says clearly he will distribute to each one as he wills. And they will come to you and say, no, everybody got this gift. Well, I have to try to get you to look and show me in the scripture where that might be. And they don't seem to care. Now, that's a balance of going above the line. But then to go above the line, they got to also not teach something, right? These are important things and principles for teaching God's word. The principle that we taught about God's word is the structure of God's word. This one is more technical, but the whole thought of it is this. We have to understand God's word as something that he has written for a specific purpose. And if you start to truly understand God's word, you'll start to see that there is structure in it. And the structure in it will help us understand the meaning. I'll give you an example. This is one of the passages that I had to break down. On Thursday night, we broke down Revelations 19. Maybe if we have time, we'll look at that again. 
But I wanted to look at a new one. This is one is for Chantel because she was looking for another passage like this. And now I found one, though it's, a, it's still going to be one that's shaped like this. Let's look at Romans 14. Romans 14. Romans 14. To teach it properly, you have to understand the structure of it. What do I mean by the structure? Well, if we take Romans 14 as a complete text, right? It's expressing an idea and ending an idea. And after that, it moves on. And before that, it moves on. If you think of it like that, then even the text inside itself should have sections, right? Imagine that I was teaching this to you and I just started writing down random ideas that I got when I looked at verse 1 and every single verse and just went through and taught that. That would be gobbledygook. That's the technical the term for it, gobbledygook. But if I really want to teach it rightly, I got to separate it into its sections. And by separating it into its sections, you will start to understand the large point. If you look at Romans 14, you will actually realize that this is a text that people twist for all kinds of reasons. This is one of the passages that people look at and they say, we shouldn't judge one another. Let me show you why, if you look at the structure, you will not see it that way. The structure of this passage is that it has five sections. What are the five sections? Well, there's a debate a little bit on where to put verse 4. But this is the way that I structure it. Verse 1 through 3. Verse 4 through 9. Verse 10 through 12, verse 13 through 19, and verse 20 through verse 23. If you section it in five ways, Hebrew and literature in all times ways is sometimes you have something we call a chiasm. And what a chiasm does is it'll build a pyramid. It'll say if we got an odd number of things, and it points up like a pyramid. And if you have an even number of things, it'll point up like a V. If it's an odd number of things, the middle is the most important. And if it's an even number of things, the, odd, the opposites are the most important. I don't think, don't think that I'm teaching this because I think that you would just be able to just go home and just identify chiasms left and right. But I'm pointing this out to say this, why I would teach this differently than somebody else. If you divide it into five sections and you look at the very center of this passage, you look at verse 10 through 12, which means that this is the central thought. And this is what it says. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account to himself to God. If that's the central thought, 
that's going to shape the way you look at the rest of the passage. If the reason I judge is not because I'm not going to go into judgment with you. That's not what the passage is saying, is it? It's saying don't get into the way of the relationship between God and his inferiors. God has workers and God is the boss. And he don't need you getting in and trying to be the boss when he's the boss. Isn't that what the passage is saying? The passage is saying this. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Since he has absolute authority over his church, he's the one that tells people what they should and should not do, not you. Because people will use this passage to talk about why we shouldn't talk about sin. People will use this passage to talk about why we shouldn't talk about doctrine. People will use this passage to talk about why we shouldn't talk about God's word. But is it saying that? No, it's not. It's saying don't get in the way of Jesus leading his people. And if you understand the text like that, it adds clarity. Once you add clarity, debate starts to go away. You start to understand, okay, I'm not going to put my opinions on the same level as God's word. Because I got to give account to Jesus for what I say. If the whole passage is about Jesus' authority, it changes our mindset. Show you another passage where this is the case, and it's easier to see here. Revelation 19. Revelations is like a TV show. It's a series of visions, a whole bunch of different scenes that you see, right? So if you want to divide Revelations, one of the biggest cues is what you see and what you hear. So look at Revelations 19. If we want to divide this section up, we should look where parts where John says he sees or hears something. So Revelations 19, what's the very first section? What does it say in verse 1? After this I heard. Right? We don't have to do anything else but understand that that's the first section because it says after this I heard. Skip down to verse 6. Then I heard. Verse 11. Then I saw. Verse 17. Verse 19. And I saw. All right. So now we got five sections, right? We don't really know anything about the text yet, do we? We just know we got five sections. But we might think about the lesson that we just learned from Romans 14, that if we got five sections, maybe the middle is the most important, right? And the one thing you notice is if it takes this shape, the outsides always complement each other, right? The opposite parts. So if it really is divided into five sections and the third section is the most important, then two and four should have something similar to each other. 
and sections one and five should have something in common, if we're right, right? This is just our theory so far. So what is the third section? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Whoa, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Would it be a shock to us if in the Bible the main part of this passage could be about Jesus? Would we, would we be shocked by that? No, we wouldn't be shocked. So if we're going to teach this sermon properly, we got to talk about the rider on the right horse, right? He's the main point of this whole passage. But then let's look at sections 2 and 4. What are those? What's section 2? Starts in verse 6. What's that about? Huh? What they doing? Okay, where are they going? Are they going to do something? What in verse 9, what does it say? going to the marriage supper. Cool. We got something in verse section 2. Marriage supper. That's pretty cool, right? We don't know what that means yet. Section 4. Is there anything in common between section 2 and section 4? Start at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Whoa. Are we on to something here? We got Jesus in the middle, sitting at the top of our passage, and surrounded by two suppers. I think already we got a sermon here, don't we? Already we can see the rider on the right horse. You're either with him, eat with him, or you get eaten by him. Right? Are we wrong? Let's look at sections 1 and 5. What's section one about? Who's getting judged? Who's getting judged? The great prostitute who corrupted the earth. Babylon, right? Man, Babylon gets defeated. And we celebrate that. Let's look at section five, verse 19. What's that about? It says, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns the sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword. What we see there? They being judged. On one hand, we got the destruction of Babylon. On the other, we got the battle of Armageddon. Both of them are judgments. Both of them we praise God for. Both of them the defeat of powerful enemies. So we can look at this passage and say this. Just by understanding the structure, we can understand the purpose, can't we? We can say this. 
we see the judgment of God as the base of our pyramid, right? The second layer of our pyramid is feasting. You celebrate with God or God will defeat you and destroy you and eat you. And then we see at the top, the rider on a white horse, Jesus Christ. That's structure. That's structure work. Now, that may seem a little bit difficult in some ways, and it is. That's the hardest part of the whole conference, the structure work. So that's technical stuff that you have to do to get to that, don't it? I'm not saying that's easy. <laughs> it's not. But if you preach a sermon on this passage, you've got to do structure work on it. Right? That's what it comes from. All you can do is keep on reading until you see the structure. That's all you can do. That's where the hard work comes in. I fed it to you. But I taught a sermon on this. And I put in hours on this. So I know where the structure is. But uh, it's not something that's going to come easy. But what I want you to do, saints, is when you read God's Word, see if you can find structures, right? Now, you may say to yourself, Brian, man, I ain't find no, I don't even know what word you use to describe the structure of that thing. And, you know, I get you, because I didn't know what that word was either until I got to those conferences. But I'll say this to you. To the more you understand the structure of a passage, the more you will understand the purpose of it. And the more you understand the purpose, the better you can teach and explain it and understand it. Think of it this way. Your favorite passages are probably passages that maybe you can't break it down like I did because you might not know the words that I know. But you still, in your mind and in your heart, it resonates with you when it stops talking about something and when it starts. It resonates with you when he's making a transition, doesn't it? All I'm doing is making a technical separation there. But you know, you know when you read Luke and you go from chapter 12 to chapter 13, you know it's probably making a transition, not just because it says chapter 12 and chapter 13, because you feel it and the Holy Spirit is teaching you, it's talking about something new. And that's important. You know these things. The Holy Spirit is teaching you these things. But the preacher has to just be more technical with it because he has to give account to God to what he preaches. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what the ladies is going through. It is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. But it is in your mouth and in your midst so you can do it. Another thing we learn is context. Y'all ladies learn a lot about context. Y'all know I love those verses in Philippians. Even at the conferences here, they pointed out Philippians, the same verse that I use, Romans, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And how many times we see that on posters and next to people's doors and stuff? And a lot of times it takes it out of context. 
Yep. Because you know that the way that that passage is meant to be used is not as a motivational speech to say you can do your business. You can get that job. You can get that property. It's not saying that. It's saying I can do all things. I could be rich or I could be poor. I could be happy or I could be sad. I could have just gotten married or I could just understand that somebody in my family died. And I could still serve God. I can do all things. And let me tell you something. When you look at the word like this, some people act like by looking at it like this, you take something away from it. You don't take anything away from it. In fact, you add to the word. Not anything that you adding to it other than what's in it, but you understand more of the richness of it. Because before you put it in its context, all you had was empty motivational speaking. But now you have a verse that is with you even if you're doing bad. You got a verse now that's with you after a funeral. You got the verse that's with you after the job said no. You got a verse that's with you when you can't pay your bills. When you lose. When you get that bad diagnosis. This is the verse that's with you now. It's not just about succeeding. Because if it's just about succeeding, you start to wonder, do, is it something wrong with me that I'm not succeeding? Because then I further got to ask, was there something wrong with Jesus? Because he appeared to lose too. There's something wrong with all the apostles who appeared to lose. They all got killed. Or is it talking about something more? All of these things are things that we learn and we get more technical with it at the conference, but the whole point is this. We are learning to love God's word more and more and training God's word. Paul's Peter said this about Paul's writings. Some of the things he wrote are difficult and hard to understand. But he did not give that as an excuse to not read and study it. In fact, let me just turn to it real quick. Second Peter 3, verse 15 and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is he saying in this passage? He said, you know what? Even I have a hard time reading Romans sometimes, and I'm an apostle. That's what he said, isn't it? But he said, it's some good stuff in there. Now, unstable people are going to twist it. What, who does he blame that people twist it? 
because it's hard? Well, of course they'll twist it because it's hard. No, he blames it on their spiritual condition. Therefore, those of us who are saints, we have the ability to understand God's word, not depending on our intellectual level, not depending on our learning, but depending on our communion with God. Those learning and things like that do come in handy, don't get me wrong. But you, at any level, can understand God's word. And you will only twist it if your morality is already in question. So he says, take care that you are not carried away with the error. He assumes that we will already be able to catch errors. So he says, grow. And that's all we can do, amen? We're not going to have a perfect understanding of God's word, but we will strive to grow. Well, like I opened up, I want to show you my progress, not perfection. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and your truth. I pray that you just bless us to grow in your understanding. In your name we pray, amen.